0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Suvi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we are joined by Andrew Kipnis, Professor of Anthropology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, to talk about his new book, The Funeral of Mr. Wong, Life, Death, and Ghosts in Urbanizing China, which was published in book form and as a free e-copy free e-copy in 2021 by University of California Press. In The Funeral of Mr. Wong, Andrew Kipnis examines social change in urbanizing China from the perspective of funerals. Through original and thoroughly engaging ethnography, the reader learns about the growth in the funeral industry and practices of memorization and what it tells us about transitions and transformations to Chinese family life patterns of urban sociality, and the role that political regulatory power plays in governing the living through the dead. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Andrew, who I have the pleasure of joining me on the show today. Andrew, thank you for joining me on the podcast.
1: Suvi, thank you for having me.
0: So I'd like to begin the show by asking about your background and research interests What drove you to conduct research on the urban Chinese funeral service industry?
1: Um, Well, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. So uh, some of it was academic. Um, I guess the academic side of it was that I had done research in rural China before, you know, in the 1980s. And when I was in a rural village, um, going to funerals was quite a natural thing. So anybody in the village... Um, could go to the, uh, a funeral that was occurring in that village. And more importantly, it was people treated it kind of like, um, I'm not sure if an honor is the right word, but they were very happy if you attended. So basically the attitude was the more people who attend the funeral, um, you know, the bigger my social network and the better it is. Um, but in urban areas, I really got the feeling that you, you would never attend a funeral unless you were invited. Um, and, you know, so funerals were kind of much more closed affairs. Um, and, so I, and also in the rural areas, um, they were quite easily organized and naturally organized. So there was a lineage elder who would handle the ritual aspects of um, any any funeral that occurred in his family. um, And this was true for all the families in the village. They all had someone like that. Um, And there was also someone on the village committee to organize all the governmental aspects of it. And there was also land on which people could bury um, either a body or a cinerary casket if the person had been cremated. Um, So everything was very locally organized and Um, later I started doing research in urban areas, but I never in the course of my research had the chance to attend a funeral. Um, and so I was, uh, you know, quite curious about how funerals were organized in urban areas. And I thought that they couldn't be so, um, locally organized. People obviously didn't have land, um, So I thought it would be an interesting lens through which to understand urbanization. So that's kind of the academic aspect of it. Um, At the same time, there are also some practical aspects to it. So uh, a a researcher friend of mine had invited me to go with him on the tour of a government-run funeral home. Um, and so that sort of made me feel like, oh, well, I can have some access to these. And so it might not be impossible for me to do research on this topic. And then I guess finally would be a more personal thing was just that I'm, I'm getting older like all of us. And I kind of felt that I didn't have enough experience with death myself. So my, my father had passed away, um, when I was fairly young, and um, but my mother was still alive at that point, and I didn't really feel that comfortable with death. I had been to a few funerals, but not that many. Um, I don't think I had even seen a dead body before, because the funerals I attended did not have open caskets. Um, so I thought it would be interesting from a personal point of view to uh, try to become a bit more comfortable um, with dying.
0: That's really fascinating. And, and you write a lot about this notion of being comfortable or uncomfortable with death. But we'll talk about that a bit later in the interview. For now, um, I wanted to move to the first chapter where you outline in great detail the funeral of a fictionalized character who you name Mr. Wong. The funeral itself, of course, is not fictional, but it's pieced together from your extensive research. And in this chapter, you repeat the accounts of the funeral procedure that goes beyond the intention of our discussion today. But perhaps you could provide a brief overview of some of the key individuals who came to play a crucial role in ensuring the rituals and procedures of Mr. Wong's funeral were seen to its completion.
1: Um, Yeah, well, I would say the... A key person in the funeral uh, would be this man named Mr. Chun, who is what I call a a one-stop-dragon operator. Um, And this is a a one-stop-dragon in Nanjing, and much of China is a person who, for a slight fee, um, helps you arrange a funeral. So this person will give you instructions on... The ritual aspects of it, they will um, tell you uh, how to go through all the government procedures, what you need to do first, what you need to do second, what you need to do third. Um, And yeah, in terms of the ritual, I mean, the ritual is very long and complicated with many stages. So there are some things that are done, uh, you know, for example, when you move the body from a hospital to uh, the state uh, funeral home. There are other things that are done in the funeral home itself. Um, in urban China nowadays, almost everyone must be cremated. And then after the body is cremated, uh, there are rituals that occur when you uh, bury the cinerary casket. And so some of these rituals uh, can actually be run by the one-stop-dragon operator, in this case uh, someone who I called Mr. Chun, who, um, Other of the rituals are, for example, the run by the employees of the state-run funeral home, um, or you can ask a religious specialist to come in and do them. Um, But the organizer, the one-stop dragon, uh, will, will explain all of this to you and will either do it himself or will tell you how to arrange it and what your options are at various stages. So I would say that this Mr. Chun was really... Um, the key person um, in this particular funeral. And, you know, going on from that a bit, I would say in almost all urban funerals, there is someone like Mr. Chun, right? So people don't have a lineage elder um, to help them arrange the funeral and tell them what to do. Um, So they need to hire someone um, to do so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and Mr. Chung definitely shines in that in that chapter, which, as I mentioned, really is is provided in, in the, the, the whole step procedure is provided in great detail from, um, you know, how Mr. Wong received help from family members and paid helpers, and then the bureaucratic rela- regulations and the ritual practices of arranging the funeral and its completion. This is all Mr. Chung is very much, from my understanding, was was kind of, passing on the information to the family members after the death of Mr. Wong for, for them to, to, full, to foresee the, the procedure itself. Um, to conduct the research for your project, you combined a range of research methods from a large range of sources. So as you describe in chapter two, you visited spaces and interviewed people involved in the funeral business and those working in state-run family homes. You went to old age homes and graveyards. You spoke to Buddhist, Christianity, uh, sorry, Christian and Muslim religious practitioners who sometimes conducted religious rituals in relation to death. You also spoke to government personnel, either those regulating the funeral industry or arranging funerals for poor people and party cadres. Overall, you mentioned that you conducted formal interviews with 55 such people, in several cases more than once, and you did more, even more informal interviews with people on the fringes, fr- sorry, fringes of the business. You also reached out to your own network of friends and wise relatives who have arranged funerals for their parents and, abs- and subscribed And you also subscribe to social media distribution lists of enterprises in the funeral industry and combining a wealth of material, you are able to address transitions such as such as the kind of transition at a moment of death and also you address the transformations in Chinese society more broadly. Perhaps you could tell our listeners more about how you came to understand this notion of transition and transformation and studying the Chinese funeral industry and practices of memorialization.
1: Um, Okay. Well, I guess for me, you know, in some sense, the idea of transitions and transformations, I guess it's kind of like a writerly device to sort of introduce my topic uh, to my audience. Um, and so I was really interested in the relationship between funerary ritual and urbanization. And so I had been thinking of urbanization as a sort of transformation, you know, a broad transformation um, in ways of life. And um, I was thinking of funerals, I guess, as terms, you know, in as a transition you know it's a transition of many sorts so it's a transition um for the family members who are still alive um it's a transition uh you know if you if you believe in the soul of the deceased person you could say that's a transition in the soul of the um deceased person so i i came up with this idea of transitions and transformations uh, to try to explore the interrelation between urbanization and funerary ritual. Um, and so, um, and seeing them, you know, in using these two words, I guess um, I wanted to emphasize the place of time in ch- and change in both of these processes.
0: Right. Yeah. Time. Time and change, of course, is, is one of the reoccurring themes, as is space and place, which you delve into in chapter three. Um, you, you describe how the spaces of the dead have become increasingly separated from the spaces of the living, and you stress that this is not only unique to China as it urbanizes, but rather is a global phenomenon. At the same time, you mention that as death is becoming removed and separated from life, it becomes more fearsome more unknown and more haunting. But this does not have to be understood in a negative light, as you write. And you remind the reader that this separation can also be productive to contest the politics of memory. Can you expand on this? How can we contest the politics of memory through the spaces that the dead are buried?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting question, and... For me, you know, in China, um, the party state plays such a strong role in, um, you know, controlling the way history is understood in China. Um, And part of that necessarily takes place through acts of memorialization. So, um, of course, the the party will run um, its own funerals for high-level high-ranking party members who pass away um there are graveyards for high-ranking party members um there are certain historical events so for example like the the nanjing massacre um is memorialized um in such a way as to try to encourage nationalism um Certain leaders, like Mao Zedong most famously, right, has his mausoleum in Tiananmen Square. Um, So there's a lot of official politics and official history that goes on through memorialization. Um, But there are also, uh, you know, individual families Uh, want to memorialize their ancestors. There's also politics on a much more local level. So, for example, um, a certain um, small city in China might want to claim itself as the birthplace of a particular party leader um, who had passed away. And so they will want to have a memorial to that Party leader, not in Beijing, but in their own city. Um, And so there are these sorts of politics. There are politics like uh, in a particular um, city, someone, you know, a worker might be memorialized as a model worker who sacrificed his life um, for oil production in a particular city. And then there could be a memorial to that worker. Um, and then there are individual families who may or may want may not want to be linked to official narratives um, uh, in their own funerals. So there are many people, for example, who, you know, they would like someone from their work unit to come to their funeral and give a speech and say that, You know, for example, Andrew Kipnis was not only a good father and a good husband, but he was also a model worker who contributed to the cause of constructing a socialist China. Um, And so there can be participation in this sort of um, way that seeks to align individuals um, with the party state. But of course, there can be also can be more rebellious forms of memorialization and people who are excluded from official state memorialization. So, you know, perhaps many of us have heard of the Tiananmen square mothers, right? So the mothers of people who died in Tiananmen square in 1989, um, who go to the graveyards to, uh, uh, every year at Qingming to um, sacrifice or to have a ceremony uh, at their children's graves. And this is, on the one hand, it's allowed to go on, but it is not allowed to be publicized. And so there are, it's always a supervised form of memorialization. There are also, you know, for example, I think in the book I, I write about, these old cultural revolution cemeteries um, in Chongqing. So there are uh, cemeteries that were devoted um, to people who died essentially fighting for their work units during the cultural revolution. Uh, and their work units at the time um, made these uh, memorials to them, you know, as as you know, almost like soldiers who had sacrificed for the cause of fighting for their work unit during the Cultural Revolution, um, and there and these and you know and these cemeteries are covered with Cultural Revolution uh, slogans and this sort of thing. Um, but from the point of view of the Contemporary Party, uh, the Cultural Revolution is nothing but an embarrassment, and so they. Uh, try to close such graveyards. So, you know, I I think the politics of memory occur at many, many levels. um, And they are all contested in some sense in cemeteries.
0: Yeah, that's that's so fascinating to think about. And I think, as you just mentioned, this idea of being supervised in the process of memorialization is something that's really fascinating and perhaps very unique to the current political regime of China. Um, in chapter four, you explore death ritual and memorization in urban China through the transformations of people's familial and social relationships. And you draw on wider social demographic transformations and changes to notions of con- connectedness and community in, in order to describe how transformations are made visible in the way that people display and list names on their tombstones um, and hire strangers who work in funeral homes, crematoriums and cemeteries. So for example, Mr. Chong, as you mentioned, the one-stop dragon. Um, so moving closer to, to the kind of the social relationships of, of um, that, that, that death ritual kind of draws on, what do these transformations tell us about the stigma of death and ghosts in China and the kinds of non-kin strangers who end up working closely with the dead?
1: Yeah, this is a a really interesting question. And, you know, I think it's true in China, but also true in many parts of the world. Um, You know, this question, I I think probably when I was growing up, if you had asked me a question like, um, would you like to marry somebody um, who uh, worked in a funeral home? I, I would have been I would say no, oh my goodness, how could I do that and and i i I think you know i I see this uh, so i I think it's quite pervasive that people who work with death are stigmatized in some way. I can give you another example um, from um, a Another academic who I've 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 had uh, uh, some contact with, who's a really good researcher, Ruth Tulson, and she writes a paper. She wrote a paper about this um, woman who was the daughter of uh, a man who um, ran the uh, funerary uh, a funeral home in Singapore, and she. Um, you know, her father did not want her to go into this business. But when her father passed away, somebody needed to take over the family business. And she ended up doing so. And she was, um, you know, university educated. She was a uh, beauty queen winner. So she won a beauty contest in Singapore. I think she was uh, something like Miss Singapore uh, entrepreneur. Anyway, I bring this up just to say, but she could not find a husband. Mm -hmm. Um, So she was this wealthy, beautiful young woman with a very good economic um, uh, uh, enterprise that she was running, but uh, no one would marry her. Um, And, you know, so and Ruth, uh, you know, tells this story, um, you know, again, as something to, you know, introduce sort of the forms of stigmatization. Uh, of working with the dead. And so the question is, is why is this the case? And, you know, I think it has something to do with death as sort of being at the intersection of something that is both really, really private and on the other hand, quite public. Um, And so, uh, you know, Working um, with, uh, you know, it's one thing. What do I want to say? You know, like in the village, when I, you know, I talked about going to funerals um, in rural China. um, And in a village, you definitely would not be stigmatized for working at uh, the funeral of one of your relatives. Right. So that seemed to be almost like an act of filial piety. Right? It made you a more moral person um, if you're helping out with the, uh, a funeral of one of your relatives, uh, even handling the body or carrying the body or um, uh, digging the grave, placing the body into the grave. Um, all these things um, uh, would not make you someone who was stigmatized at all. Um, but here in urban China, the people who do this type of work, they have trouble finding people to willing to be married, to willing to, to marry. Um, they, for example, they tell their children, uh, "Do not tell any of your classmates the occupation of your parents, because um, uh, you know then you'll be stigmatized and 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 you won't have any friends." Um, they avoid shaking people's hands. Um, And according to some surveys anyway, they also suffer from mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, the stigma of working with the dead, um, I think it has to do with, uh, you know, I, I made a comparison to sex work, right? So it's like, It's like doing something that is very appropriate for you to do in the context of a marital relationship, but if you do it uh, for strangers, for money, then all of a sudden you've kind of crossed this line between what should be um, a private matter and what is kind of a commercial public matter. Um, and this is happening, right, as China as, is urbanizing, right? So as people in their daily lives are needing more and more things taken care of by strangers on a commercial biz- basis. Um, so more and more of life is commercialized. But there are some lines that we feel very uncomfortable um, of, of being crossed in sort of a commercial Uh, way. And so I think that funerals and sex are two of those lines. Um, And yes, so I think it's a very interesting aspect of the intersection of urbanization um, and uh, the growth of a private commercial funerary industry.
0: Absolutely. And I think that really comes out quite strongly in the case of, of China because of its rapid Urbanization in in, in very recent history. um, As you were, your your kind of example that you gave about whether you would have um, considered marrying into um, a family who works in the funeral industry, maybe. Um, earlier, earlier in your life. Um, it made me think of um, when I was in university in Glasgow, my close friend was dating someone um, whose family was in the funeral industry. And they were very wealthy because uh, obviously in the UK and quite broadly in Europe, I guess in general, the funeral um, industry is already very much one of a commercialized and kind of marketed system. So it's kind of at least this, this, this boyfriend she was dating was, you know, working in a family run. um, Very, very high rep, you know, they had a very good reputation in this funeral industry. So quite the opposite, they might have had a stigma, but they were also, um, you know, kind of upper middle class. So so they had a very different economic um, status in society. Whereas I think, I mean, what comes out very strongly in your book and your research is that these especially the one-stop dragon businesses um are very much the opposite it's it's you know if we want to use this class system it's it's far from the upper middle class and instead they might be traveling from the kind of the outskirts of society of of, sorry outskirts of, of of the city maybe from from villages as well and kind of doing that they're very much on the margins of of chinese society more broadly this um this topic, this this theme of economic transformation, comes out um, comes out in chapter five, and this was such a fascinating chapter because you really um, expand to look at how how the funeral industry is being commercialized online in China. Um, so, but more broadly, how does China's economic transformation explain people's spending behaviors on the dead and the moral exchanges that they carry?
1: Um, yeah, so that's, that's another interesting and very complicated question. So, so many things are changing in China at once, um, and they're all sort of interrelated, you could say, in some ways. Um, so, uh, different things that are happening. Um, uh, one is, you know, just people are getting wealthier, so they have more money to spend on funerals. Um, They also have more money to give as gifts. And so you can see this in sort of the gift-giving patterns um, that occur around funerals. So funerals are very often an occasion um, in urban China and in rural China as well, um, at which um, related families will give cash gifts to each other. Um, And so it's, it's generally understood that if, you know, one of your um uncles dies that you would go to the uh family of that uncle you would be invited to the funeral and in the days leading up to the funeral you would go over to that family's house and give them a cash gift and there could be some rituals that occur um when you do that um so Uh, Some of the things that I think that are interesting, though, I mean, there's, you know, so many aspects of uh, spending at funerals. Um, Gosh, so one of the things that I noted, right, was that the number of people um, sort of giving gifts at funerals has declined a bit in urban areas as people tend to draw tighter and tighter lines around their communities. So as I said, in urban China, um, their community really becomes in some sense their family or maybe their family and a few close friends. And so there's only a really tight circle of people who are invited to a funeral and who would give these cash gifts. Um, So one aspect of the transformation is the circle of people who give gifts becomes smaller. A second aspect of the transformation, I guess, would have to do with inheritance. Um, And what's happening here is that in the current generation, there is a lot of disputed um, inheritance cases, um, in part because, you know, the people who are in their 80s now, let's say, were born before or had their children before the Um, birth control policy came into effect so they have multiple children uh, but they also if they're urban residents they tend to own their own apartments and so they have several children they have one apartment but third is these apartments in many urban areas are now very very valuable and especially valuable in relation to the income of the heirs. So in other words, you know, someone in their 80s today who uh, worked during their working career in a work unit in urban China, and as a result of that, they own an extremely valuable apartment. They have three or four children. The worth of that apartment might be, you know, 30, 40, 50 times um, the annual income of their children, and this leads um, to uh, a lot of inheritance disputes. Um, And I think, you know, so what is it about China's economic transformation here? Um, There are several aspects. You know, perhaps the most important one is that the value of apartments has gone up much more rapidly um, than people's income. Um, and that makes people who own apartments sort of quite wealthy um, in relation to everybody else in urban China um, on average. And you know, perhaps I'll leave it there, but I think that's one of the more um, dangerous aspects of uh, uh, economic development in urban China over the past few decades.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just for listeners to know, Andrew goes into great amount of detail looking at the different prices of of the gift giving, but also just the, the you know going back to Mister Wong, this fictionalized character, there's there is much detail about the, the actual prices of of the funeral um, of each stage in the funeral um, procedure. Um, And also what's really fascinating in your research is that you look at how online companies are kind of um, leveraging on this growth of the private funeral industry, which is growing expansively. And at the same time, um, what's interesting about it is that because the funeral industry is still in government control, so it cannot at the same time claim the same market characteristics like other companies. just now, you mentioned inheritance disputes, which does come through um, th- through this example of Mr. Wong's funeral. There's inheritance disputes, and you and you draw on this um, in several instances in your book. Um, this m- moves to uh, moves to this n- to 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 kind of questions of rules, laws, and customs that you write about in Chapter Six that govern the funeral procedures, um, and in Chapter Six. What I really enjoyed about this chapter was how you write about the materialism that these rules and regulations refer to through party rhetoric and what they tell us about current day political ideals in China. Do you mind expanding on this idea of materialism in, in the rules and regulations for our listeners to understand?
1: Yeah, I, I found this, you know, quite um, sort of both uh, confusing and revealing about um, uh, 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 sort of party propaganda. Um, so uh, one aspect of materialism is that, is that the the uh, you know when I interviewed cadres or certain cadres or when I read sort of materials um, about funerary reform. By the government Uh, so they would often say you know that the communist party is scientific and materialist um, and materialism would be opposed to um, uh, a sort of something that you know might be called spiritism or you know belief in ideals or idealism Um, and so the idea was something like you know they they The the party does not believe in anything like a soul, right? So when you die, you die. That's it. Um, There's no soul for you to memorialize. Um, And so, therefore, you know, while the party will tolerate people having all their funerals and so on and so forth, it doesn't really like it, right? Because it somehow. Um, seems to imply uh, that there's something that exists that is not material. Um, At the same time, though, the party is very concerned, I would say, with its own soul. So, you know, if you read party propaganda, it will say there is a phrase in there, something like the soul of the Communist Party. Um, And, of course, the party does run funerals and the party for its, for its members. Um, and the party does have, uh, special cemeteries for, uh, national martyrs. And it does run the mausoleum to Mao Zedong and, uh, you know, many other, um, uh, and it memorializes, um, uh, certain figures from the past. Um, so, To me, it's quite contradictory, right? And what I came to conclude is the way they were using this idea of materialism was in a completely contradictory way. Um, And in other words, they were suggesting that the party has a soul, the party has something that you can memorialize, the party has a spirit, uh, but other things don't. Um And that, uh, uh, I thought was really quite um, telling in a certain sense. To get a little more concrete, though, you know, so in its dislike for things that it calls superstition, um, you know, for example, one of the things it would emphasize, And in part, they would emphasize this as a green measure. It would say that, you know, we don't like uh, people burning spirit money at uh, cemeteries. So in many cemeteries, you were not allowed to burn spirit money. Um, And, you know, one of the reasons would be given would be, you know, again, a sort of materialism. It would be that, you know, you're, Deceased ancestor does not have a soul. They don't live in another realm. Um, So uh, burning spirit money is nothing but a sort of superstition, an anti-scientific, anti-materialist practice. Um, And so we have to limit it. Um, Yeah, I'll stop there. But uh, so that is the, um, you know, sort of this, Uh, relationship of ideas of materialism um, to some of the particular rules and regulations um, uh, at cemeteries. Um,
0: Thank you so much. Um, Just to expand on that, I'm going to quote directly from your book, because I think this interview you had with one of the with an official you were interviewing really is is quite telling and it really speaks to this as you were just describing um it really speaks to this idea of how the party only the party deserves the soul for celebration anyway this this interview with the official which you quote in your book says the party advocates thick care and thin funerals and you expand to to describe how this official says that um, the party would want that all the leftovers um, of of the body when the person dies should be used for medical personnel and cremated litter, and the ashes should be used to <laughs> could be used to make bricks that would be used for the construction of buildings. Um, so I'm not sure how if this was in any way described to you with humor, but obviously this official is really trying to make the point that that um that a that communists are, or or the the communist party in china or is a materialist party and they do not worry about the souls um or the afterlife and i think it was quite telling because this was very much directly the words of of an official that you spoke to um, on this topic of souls and spirits um let's move on to chapter 7 where you expand on, on this theme, but rather than looking at the changes and transformations and transitions, you look at the continuati- continuities in ritual duty that continue in funeral practices across China to this day. And in looking at this notion of continuity, you are able to consider how the treatment of the soul, including its transcendence and its immortality, are still taken on in the practices of China's political regime, even though it claims to be a secular one. Um I think you already touched touched on this a bit just now, um, but maybe you could expand a bit more on the limitations of secularization in China today.
1: Yeah, so this is a, a really interesting question and you know I'm I'm personally I'm not an extremely religious person um, and but what really came across to me as a result of doing this research is that, you know, here's the Chinese Communist Party and it's saying it's materialist, it's saying it's scientific, um, but still, it still has to have funerals. It still has to memorialize something. And so one of the limits of, of secularization is that we need spirits, right? You know, if you're a communist party, right, you have to say, well, you know, I want, you know, if you're a communist, then you should be devoting your life to promoting communism. Well, what is communism? You know, you could say, well, it's a, a spirit of equality, a spirit of um, uh, that we all have something in common. Um, but it, if it doesn't exist as a spiritual thing, how can you devote yourself to it? Um, so, you know, if we really are all just, Material products, you know, if we can be reduced to whatever the molecules in our ashes that can be transformed into bricks um, or can be used in medical uh, experiments or organs, you know, one of my organs could be transplanted to one person and another could be transplanted to another person. If I'm all just sort of reducible to this material level, then... Where do I get the motivation to do anything? Why would I want to devote myself to communism? Why would I want to devote myself to anthropology? Why, you know, why, you know, how can I justify anything? And um, I think that so that that's one of the limitations that comes out is when you pay attention. Attention to what gets memorialized, you'll see that very often it's ideals, right? So it can be the ideal of patriotism, it can be the ideal of communism, it could be the ideal of being devoted to your family, of being a good parent, um, or aunt, or uncle, Um, it can be the ideal of being a kind person, it can be the ideal of being a good educator. Um, And so even people who are very secular, um, I would say they're not purely materialist because they still need these ideals um, to devote themselves to. Um, And these ideals are very often what gets celebrated at funerals um, and what gets carved into tombstones Um, and what gets memorialized by nation-states, you know, in their national cemeteries. Um, So I I really see this as one of uh, the limits of secularization. Um, A second limit, um, quite related to this, is sort of at the linguistic level. So um, what I saw there was that when people talk about their ideals or the souls that they wish to memorialize or the spirit that they wish to celebrate, um, very often they draw on a sort of language that has a real religious history. So even these words, soul and spirit, um, they're, they're kind of hard to use um, in a materialist imagination Um, so even the language that you use to speak about this even if you're not particularly religious uh, becomes a language that's full of these um, uh, sort of uh, non-scientifically proven entities
0: yeah that's really fascinating and it really draws on this complexity of language and, and the impossibility of of escaping from, from the, the the connotations that certain words, and notions carry. Um, you begin your book with the fictionalized depiction of Mr. Wong um, as a means of um, illustrating contemporary urban funerals in China today, and you end your book with, as you write, a bit of fiction with a ghost story. I think that's really interesting. This this kind of play on fictionality and and ghost stories can also be fiction. Um, and you emphasize that, quote, stories, particularly ghost stories, portray truths about the way that we perceive and remember the world in ways nonfiction writing cannot, unquote. Can you tell our listeners more about the role that ghost stories and their transmission tell us about the haunting social realities that people live in today?
1: Um, yeah, I thanks for that. And so... I guess there were a a few aspects of this. So one of them, you know, I was talking about souls in the, in the previous chapter, and I was just talking about that as sort of like ideals of things that we want to celebrate that are positive. But I I also thought that, you know, sometimes our memories aren't always positive. Uh, So we can be haunted by, negative things that happened to us by shameful events, um, by events when we were, um, negative things happened to us. Uh, uh, um, And, you know, I thought that memory is much more than just sort of our positive ideals, but really it can be anything. And we can say that certain memories haunt us um, and maybe we would prefer that they didn't. But to me, it's sort of the psychological quality of memory um, that ghost stories get at. So this feeling of being haunted, of thinking of things that maybe you would prefer not to think about, but somehow something makes you think about them anyway. Um, And it's also related to grief, right? When we are so... um, Saddened by the death of someone who was close to us, um, that we are really overcome by thinking of about them, and then you know we continue to think about them, and as we think about them, it just brings more and more sorrow, or more and more anger, or or other um, what we might perceive as negative emotions, Um, and. You know, we, we keep going around in circles for, for quite a long time by these thoughts that maybe we don't want to pervade our um, psychological space, but for some reason do. Um, so grief and memory and haunting, um, to me they all have um, something in common and ghost stories or this idea of having ghosts... Um, Overtake you, uh, haunt you, and make maybe even make you do things that you wish you hadn't done. um, uh, I I think is something very powerful and something that we um, all have to deal with. And it's kind of the, um, it's another side, it's sort of the opposite of memorialization. So memorialization is about remembering the things. We think we should remember, but haunting is about these things that maybe we don't want to remember, but they come into us anyway. Um, and so for me, ghost stories are a way of getting at these truths.
0: Mm. Yeah, it makes me think about all of this theory on, on repression and, and how, how people repress memories and, and, and the kind of the difficulties in doing that. I think, I think stories of ghosts and people's experiences with ghosts is a really fascinating way of thinking about the impossibility of, of removing certain histories where the histories continue to haunt us. Um, well, Andrew, I've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we end today's episode, I wanted to ask you about what you're working on and thinking about these days. What are your current projects and what have you been doing since The Funeral of Mr. Wong was published?
1: Um, okay, so one thing that's been keeping me quite busy um, is I'm now editing the journal Howl. And so um, that takes up an awful lot of my time. Um, and it's, a, it's sort of a way of keeping me thinking um, while there's this pandemic and we're not allowed to uh, travel so much. I have been thinking that because it's difficult for me to leave Hong Kong, in the, um, uh, you know, because of the pandemic, um, but also uh, perhaps increasingly difficult to do research in China, um, that I would like to do a project in Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, there is um, a bit of a uh, controversy now. Uh, related to my research on funerals, which is that there's a a real shortage of space in columbaria um, for families. So most families in Hong Kong will cremate their deceased loved ones, but after they're cremated, they would like to have a niche in a columbaria um, so that they can go visit them on Qingming and other holidays. Um, But there's a real shortage of columbaria space in Hong Kong. And there are quite a lot of controversies about what the government should do it do about it. So should, there, should it be allowed to build new columbaria um, uh, because they need uh, uh, licenses? Should the government itself build more public ones? Where should they build them? Because when you build a new one, then there's all these problems that you get a lot of NIMBY problems. So people will say no, I don't want new funerary facilities built in my backyard or in my neighborhood um, because of the haunting and because of the stigma uh, associated with such places. So it's, it's you know, you could say uh, I'm interested in starting a project on that, uh, which would continue sort of the emphasis from the last book, but to really focus on them in the context of Hong Kong.
0: That sounds really fascinating. And... Um... I really also did enjoy those references you make to to, to Hong, Kong, Hong Kong's funeral industry. I thought it was really fascinating because it's a whole other scale of urbanization, and um, as you just mentioned, the kind of the lack of the land and the space and and prices of land. So that sounds like such a fascinating project, which I and I imagine the listeners of this show will really look forward to hearing more about as it unfolds. Um, For now, I wanted to thank you, Andrew Kipnis, for putting time aside and for joining us today to talk about your very fascinating work. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Sufi.
0: And thank you also to the listeners for tuning in to New Books and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I strongly recommend The Funeral of Mr. Wong, Life, Death, Ghosts, and Urbanizing China for all our listeners, which you can now buy from University of California Press or download for free online. Have a great week, everyone.